Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. The pages and airwaves are filled with horror stories and poor experiences everywhere you look. In some corners of the world, those stories are perhaps the exception or a rarity. From hotels to Airbnbs in the travel industry to restaurants, coffee shops and beyond. But none more so than healthcare, where the stories of misery abound. In some cases, the story is heartbreaking as age overtakes us and our bodies fail in a variety of ways. But there's a whole additional set of categories of poor experiences in healthcare that just pile on the misery. I personally have had my own share and have been brought to tears by automated and indifferent denial systems that ignore clinically valid decisions and thorough, thoughtful medical decision-making. The news is full of stories of the so-called surprise bills. Just to be clear, the surprise here is only the patient. The reason for the surprise is the lack of transparency. But beyond all the systemic problems in healthcare, there is an aspect of the experience that is just not fully thought out. If you have not experienced healthcare in the first person, lucky you. But even then, you may have seen healthcare through the eyes of a relative or friend at the periphery. Even that experience can be jarring as you watch someone else struggle with experiences that can, on the surface, seem indifferent or cruel to a patient who is already stressed with declining health and perhaps even depressing news on their health status. Overlaying a poor user experience on top of that just adds unnecessarily to the misery. Think back to a positive user experience A meal you had out where you came away not just loving the restaurant because the meal was good, but because you felt taken care of and special. More often than not, that feeling was driven by other things than the menu items and food choices and came down to an individual or some aspect of the service you received that turned good or sometimes even bad experiences into a good, positive, memorable one. We can and should be doing this in healthcare. It is hard especially in the current burnout-filled climate where everyone is feeling extra pressure. And perhaps we should take a leaf out of Max Strom's guidance. Relax your face for the rest of your life. And at the same time, we could take a leaf out of my next guest book that is filled with positive can-do attitudes born in the hospitality industry and brought to healthcare. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Sarah Richardson. She is the Senior Vice President and Chief Digital and Information Officer at Tivity Health. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Good to see you. So um, 
you have an interesting background. It's not typical in this particular space in healthcare. You started out in hotel operations. Tell us a little bit about what that did for you, how you started there, and also what it's brought to your experience and what you've brought to the healthcare space. Yes, and I still love hospitality and hotel operations. I travel a lot for work. I'm, I'm saying we all do, but on the receiving end, right? Correct, yes. <laughs> That's not what you were meaning, right? <laughs> no, it's, uh, I, I love to, again, the whole space of like, if I love to see the world, what's the best way to do that? And I literally, when I was about 17 or 18, thought I'm going to go work for Marriott or Hilton, and I'm going to travel the world opening their hotels. That was my goal. Until you realize nomadically that probably wouldn't be the best way to create a longer life with another human, as an example. What was fascinating is I went to UNLV in the 90s, early 90s. I did not have to leave Las Vegas to open four of the largest resorts in the entire world wow. during that time frame. And because I was working in those environments, I never had to apply for a job. My bosses just took me with them to every single resort. So every 18 to 24 months, you were going and opening the next mega resort because your boss just took so you So you're responsible for the expansion in Vegas? I didn't know that piece about you. Yeah, it really wasn't a family <laughs> town in the 90s. We tried really hard with the theme park at the MGM, and guess what? It didn't work. Um, now there's condos out in that back lot. I was there for that family time, and it wasn't really that good. It didn't really necessarily make sense. No. And yeah, can you bring your family? Sure, you can. And yeah. it's cleaned up its act as far as like what you show up to do there. Uh, but that back, I stayed there for 15 years. I stayed in Las Vegas for 15 years. Absolutely loved everything about it. I still do. Healthcare took me on a journey around the country to serve first HC and then Optum, that part I'm grateful for as well because healthcare is local and you experience it in every community that you live in and you adapt your style and the needs of the patients and the physicians and the caregivers based on really the culture of the organization as much as the culture of the people that you're serving. But let's go back to the, the experience of opening and you know some of that because I, I, I know that's formative. It sort of impacts you in different ways when you start to deal with people where they really do have a choice. And, you know, we can talk about choice in healthcare, and there is some, but it's not quite the same as a hotel. I mean, you know, there's a lot in Vegas. What were some of the things that you picked up as, you know, through that experience that I think are maybe missing in healthcare? That you can do anything. I st at 19 years old, I opened the MGM Grand. I was still in college, but I was working full-time. So 5,005 rooms. If you open the largest resort in the world at 19, you don't know that you can't do anything else. And therefore, nothing in my career has ever been daunting, whether that was opening a new hospital, whether I was creating new experiences for, for patients, for guests, for whomever is it that experience. Yes, you can. It's literally putting the commitment forward and creating enough people that want to be committed to the same thing. And when you take on grand opportunities, it creates a camaraderie that is a point in time. And you get good at that and you get confident in it, you just continue to bring it forward into every setting that you do. But how do you bring that to healthcare? Because I don't think people come in, maybe they do, maybe they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed initially, but I think we sort of press a lot of that out or maybe it doesn't come in. How do you get that in the healthcare space? Because that's what we need. We need that. We can do anything, but there's definitely a sense of, well, maybe not. Well, in healthcare, and I really think about being both the patient, but also the patient's family, because I've been both. And what's interesting about healthcare is I've always said, how many of us receive that work in healthcare receive our healthcare from where we work? Mm. It's about 50% because insurance is covered by the spouse or by the military, different aspects. That alone, though, 
if you're the one experiencing your product all the time, you're the one who's able to give it the most feedback and make it better. And when you're in the hospital, you're vulnerable. You're at your most, in some cases, sad or happy. Are you having a baby? Are you having surgery? You've got to be able to want to connect with people at the human level. And that's that ability where, yes, you can because people need you. They need you to be empathetic. They need you to care. They need you to create something that says, I actually don't really want to be here. For the time that I am here, I'm going to make it feel like you did at least have an amazing experience while you were here. The continuum of care, though, is something that most people don't get to choose which hospital they go to. You want to go to a fancy hotel, you pay more money. You want to go to a fancy hospital, what if you don't have one in your community? Mm. So you have to make all of those opportunities matter in the moment that they're occurring. So think about that from, you know, the, the I, you know, that's quite a stark difference. I go to a hotel because I want to. I typically don't go to a hospital because I want to. Mostly that's not the case. So that for me makes it even more important that that experience is nothing short of stellar. But the experience that I receive or certainly have have seen is is not close to that, certainly not in many of the places. Do you think we should be sending all of our healthcare folks through an experience in the hotel industry to learn some of that? I don't know if I've thought about it like that. To a degree, the clinicians themselves have already put themselves through the schooling and the opportunity to be the best at what they are able to provide, and that's healthcare. That part is the harder training. That is the clinical background and the knowledge. I don't necessarily believe you shouldn't. They shouldn't be exposed to how to create a better experience for the patient because bedside manner is a big deal. It's all the support services, and this is why hospitals and hotels aren't that different in some aspects. All the support services create the environment that allows the clinician to be their best selves, whether that's housekeeping, whether that's food services, whether that's the technology in the background. Everybody's supporting the capability for them to do their best work. To a degree, those are the ones that you want to make sure can create that environment for others because if you're the nurse, if you're the doctor, you're the only person that can literally save that person's life. That's true, but when you look at some of the papers on this and even, you know, dive into some of the detail, that's almost table stakes in healthcare. At least it ought to be. I know in some cases it's not, but if we take that as table stakes, what brings the biggest impact is none of that stuff. It's about how the person at the front desk treated you or what the discharge or let's be frank some of the tail end process that's really quite awful Mm -hmm. that we sort of send these surprise bills that's you know trending at this point that for me feels like a far more important element and i I, you know i'm a physician so i'm not diminishing the physician (laughs) components to this i'm not but if they're not surrounded by that excellence then they're not they can't deliver the best care and it's interesting that you mentioned like the, the tail end process. I mean, I've long been a fan of advocacy and healthcare at all levels because when the MOBs start coming in or the EOBs start coming in or all these different papers and all these, just how do you create literacy in, in healthcare that lets people navigate what they are experiencing every single day? Uh, 
it just doesn't exist. I don't think you can go to a class at a hospital that says, we're going to teach you how to navigate all your bills. We're going to teach you how to do all these pieces. Some have created programs similar to that. You have to really take the time and energy to learn how to navigate healthcare. And even being in this space for 23 years, managing my own records, they're all over the map. I've moved eight times in 20 years from my job. There's no health record on me in one place. Yeah, I, I've I've been doing a bit of that traveling too. There is a health record on me in one place. It's in my house. It's in all sorts of mix of paper exactly. and digital, and I've scanned it, and it's sort of scanned and actually proven to be a big positive for me. But um, you know, that was a personal journey that I had to take. So you're a digital person, yet we don't really have a digital answer to that, at least not to my understanding, to sort of bring all of this together. Despite all of this effort, meaningful use, you name it, that we've sort of invested, we've still not managed to over, overcome that, yet I can pull all of my other data together. Mm-hmm. Why? I've had this conversation all week for the right reasons, in that it's to me it's twofold. So we've added technology in a lot of ways to help streamline the medical journey. But we haven't made the medical journey itself any better, easier than it was for me when I entered healthcare almost 23 years ago. Mm. You can't, you still have to call quite often for an appointment. And if you're not calling, maybe you can use technology to get the appointment, but your wait times are still three or four weeks. Unless it's your family doctor that you know and you just show up. Now maybe you have telemedicine, so you have a shortcut. Except that that shortcut, unless it's provided by your healthcare system, doesn't connect into your medical record that you have somewhere else. So we haven't made healthcare easier. We've only made the digitization of what used to be paper processes maybe more streamlined. And yet, to a degree, they're fractured simply because the system itself, from the grassroots perspective, to me, is still broken. So, I mean, central to that is the electronic medical record, which, you know, is the poster child of a stupid, stupid implementation, let's be clear. We took the paper record and said, let's turn it digital, and didn't. Should we throw it all out and start again? Is that really the requirement here? Because sometimes it feels that way. I don't know that you start. Oh, you, you throw it out and start over. You say, "What? where do we start? Take a small piece. Because I think about what I'm doing from a digital acceleration perspective in my own organization. And I've had myriad experts tell me, you can only do that where you are because you're small enough to make it happen. And I'm like, why wouldn't you just carve out 10% of your current organization if it's monolithic and huge and go after that piece? You can do these things. Maybe you don't do it all at the same time. So there's enough technology that now exists that says, you know, you can create singular solutions for some of the biggest needs in care, which is what we're seeing today. They're eventually going to come together. I'm a firm believer that the EHR is gone at some point because you've created all these point solutions that have a way to connect on the back end and the intent of what the EMR was, which got us where we are today to create all these opportunities to bring all these new solutions forward. Those new solutions can thoughtfully come together and you almost have an a la carte EMR based on the best of the best. Think about when you go, I'm not making healthcare simple as a hot fudge Sunday. I would never do that. But when you go to Baskin Robbins, you get whatever you want. Right. Think about when you used to have a cable and you had to have all the channels. Now you have three or four subscriptions to streaming services. Your healthcare can be the same way. And then it's on maybe your dashboard, it's maybe on your screen. You pick and choose what you need, and then you have access to all those elements. The EMR can become that eventually. So I, I'm just going to call out the 19-year-old that opened MGM, you know, 5,000-plus beds, whatever, and say, 
I hear that coming through as part of that optimism because you saw that it was possible in what at the time was probably some substantial barriers to achieving and, you know, there's no way this is going to work, whatever you did. How do we bottle that and bring that to other areas? Because that, that feels like a critical element to this of making that change. Is it about leaders that have that drive and experience? Is that what creates the change? Change? Yes, individual leaders can create and be the change they want to see in others. We hear that all the time. It also takes a, a group of people like-minded in the desire for the pursuit, but curious enough to know that each of them has to individually bring something unique to the table. You, you do things, you do it a, literally like a one-time thing. Like think of a championship team. They're brought together maybe two or three years. You can have the best Zen master in the world. You can have Phil Jackson leading your team you're still going to get only championships two or three years at a time. You get those happening and these bursts in healthcare and they go, oh, we're going to do what they did. And that just creates a, an energy that allows these things to happen. One person is not going to change the face of healthcare. But one person can bring enough people together to have significant impacts. And you saw that happen. I mean, think about what Epic and Cerner did for us. That next phase of what those companies did there's somebody behind them who's going to do the same thing. I, I, I agree. I think that's essential to that. I think the piece that I think is worth amplifying is it's pulling in the other individuals that bring something to the table. So you, you can't just have a seat at the table. You've got to be a contributor. It, it's, I, I always talk about this in two agendas, your own agenda and the agenda of whoever you're working for, the business agenda and they have to align as closely as possible so that you bring something and you get something as well as part of that and I think that's what you uh, talk about so let, let's switch gears a little bit I know you have a lot of passion around this area but equity it, it, it's especially since the pandemic has been this enormous topic there's been a spotlight on it but I feel we keep going around saying yes there's equitable problems it's not evenly distributed we talk about solutions, but we're not actually delivering solutions. I think you feel differently about that. There are solutions that level the playing field. I work for Tivity Health. We have silver sneakers. If you are over 65 and your Medicare Advantage plan carries our services, 18 million seniors have access to an in-gym in -gym network and digital content. We have the same thing for commercial providers to Bird Along Plus. If your employer wants to provide wellness benefits to you, for digital and in-person, you can contract them with us. So we have this continuum of just the wellness aspect. What's interesting, though, overall is you still have to get that through your employer or you have to get it through your insurance plan. And so much of access to care in general is going to be insurance-based or it's going to be employer-based. It's very hard to get certain things that you need self-pay. And if you can pay for it, it's exorbitantly expensive. So I think about all the people that get left behind because let's go back to a hotel, you choose where you stay because you can afford it. If we ever made healthcare a space where it was self-pay and you could go and get the things that you needed at an affordable rate, you're always going to have disparities in equity because of this, the way that the, the world works. You know, some people, there's the one percenters on, on either side. Mm. But when you can't go and get something yourself, you have to take what's available to you in a given structure, that does not lend itself to any kind of equity the spaces where you make them more broadly available 
that starts to level some of the playing fields. So I, I'm going to push back a little bit because I, I, I can feel within that your sort of uh, support for the work-based health insurance. And I've certainly been heard to say, and I'm going to say it here, I feel like that's the fourth leg in all of this and should not be in there. I just don't see it. I feel like they're playing interference. Sure, they can bring a little bit of discount, but you could get that in other ways. We do it in other places. Do you agree? I like the model where if you, honestly, I, I manage my funds very well personally. Give me the money to, cho to, pay, to choose my own care. Now, that would be the open marketplace that we have today. Allow people to manage their own care. Give them the money to manage their care in the way that works for them. And that's just not commonplace. Do I believe we'll see that more and more? through employers saying, you know what, rather than us providing your benefits, here's, I don't know, $2,000 a month to take care of your care. The thing is, you're still going to be then responsible for mm. making sure that that's what you're using it for as an example. But let the consumer choose based on an open marketplace. That'd be a pretty special place to be. Yeah, no, I, I, I think choice is essential to create a marketplace. I'm not here sort of wanting to impose any kind of uniform single system people hear the accent and go oh you want the nhs here that's not <laughs> me at all but I, I i really struggle with the and the reason i do with the um employers is if you're not full-time employed or employed in a company that's over 50 you're probably not getting insurance and the open market just does, it, it never got fixed I, I, it doesn't seem to have been fixed not with obamacare or um any of those attempts if you just pulled the whole plug and said, here are the solutions, you know, we see it in Switzerland as an example, that's maybe one of the ways. So it, that being all of the case, how do we approach this, but do it earlier? I mean, you talked about your solution for the, the silver sneakers. That's really a bit late for all of that. I feel like, I mean, I mean, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm approaching it, but I want access to that because that's the way that we head off all of this terrible healthcare outcomes. How do we pull it back and give it to the younger groups? Well, so it starts now. I mean, literally, if your employer provides that wellness aspect to you, you might get that through us. And there's several aspects. But again, if you're going to thoughtfully employ, I mean, we work in healthcare. We should be healthy and, and living and taking <laughs> our steps and eating our vegetables and all the things we talk about. I'm always amazed about how many people in healthcare just don't live a healthy life. And- it's a choice, but when you're 65, as an example, maybe you're going to live to be 80, and I am very fortunate to have people in my family who are in their 80s, but they've been active their whole life. So they're just aging gracefully to a degree, even though getting old, my aunt says it's for the birds, but she's been active her entire life. She still runs a full winery and a ranch because she's out there every single day mm. with her team and doing that work. And how do we make sure that people are aware of that being an important aspect? You don't have to have access to fancy solutions to still make healthy choices. So we push people into a better direction. We do it earlier. We essentially turn our sick care system into a well care system. Does that open up more possibilities? It does because one of my friends is a therapist and she says, Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and sick. Those are the five ways you can't make a decision. You should not make a decision. And if they're combined, you're even worse off. If you are living your best life and your best self and you're creating those environments where, heck, I just came from a, a luncheon where well, the yoga instructor did breath work 
two minutes, 10 deep breaths. You know what? Everyone left completely refreshed, ready to come do the rest of their day. Micro changes, micro capabilities. You don't need an hour to go to the gym. Take two minutes to take 10 deep breaths. And it refocuses and, and re-energizes you in ways that are so simple every single day. But we have to want to not only practice that for ourselves, we have to want to give that to others. It's extraordinary how they do have that impact. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Nick. There are big hills to climb and challenges to face in our world, and especially in healthcare. But as Sarah points out, together, anything is possible. Take that moment to breathe, re-energize yourself, and work to find those small or micro opportunities and wins for the individual, the department, and the system. Your better pill to swallow is to anchor on the common goals of bringing about positive change to align everyone in your organization. They are not just employees and workers. They are also mothers, fathers, sons and daughters, as well as friends, patients and carers. Building a diverse team will help bring equitable, accessible healthcare to everyone so we can all live our best life. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash HUD for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HC Upside Down. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.